On today's 22nd century episode, I spoke with Ellen from Aparito. Aparito uses a combination of wearable technology and smartphone apps to help in the real-time collection of patient data to assist with disease monitoring outside of the hospital. We talk about the existing solutions to the problem, why Aparito is needed, what diseases they monitor, and the potential impact of the technology in changing people's lives. Hello, Ellen. Hi. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast this morning. Um, it's great to have you on this episode. Thank you. Um, if you could just start with a little introduction um, about yourself and your journey, that'd be amazing. Yeah, so my background's in clinical uh, paediatrics, um, so I was working at Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital, got involved in clinical trials, and for 18 years was sort of working either clinically academically or as a regulator um, in the development of new drugs uh, for children um, and for rare diseases Um, and that led me to start my own company Aparito about four and a half years ago. Amazing and the first kind of question I always ask on the podcast is the biggest myth or misconception that people have about the tech and also about Aparito. Um, so I think people, the, the biggest misconception um, I think people have about Aparito currently is that we are a wearable company. Okay. Um, I think people get very excited about wearables at the moment and so they seem to sort of, um, and that's a, a huge problem I think because we're very driven by the problem and then try and find a solution as opposed to saying we have a product and we're now looking for a place to put it. Um, So we've been really trying to explain that um, our service is tech-enabled. We have a SaaS platform for all patient-generated data um, and wearable is just one small component of that. Um, And we see it as sort of um, developing and validating these directly reported patient-generated data um, as a way to improve the drug development life cycle and the clinical trial experience from a patient's point of view. Awesome. And then what does the other kind of technologies look like that you have at your disposal? Yeah, so we primarily try and use the bring your own device approach. Okay. So from a patient-centric point of view, we discourage giving additional handsets or devices to patients and allow them to... Um, download the app directly on their own phone um, and integrate it into their day-to-day life. So it's all driven by their own phone, but we focus very much on capturing uh, videos, voice, photos, medication adherence, uh, quality of life scores, um, and sort of the the bigger picture. Um, And if the patient consents, we can integrate um, local weather environmental data to try and understand how much the sort of uh, weather and pollution, pollen, things like that could potentially be impacting your health on that day as well. And then so how are you, how would you cap, sort of capture that data? Can you do a little bit into how that would work? Is it kind of, obviously you mentioned wearables, so I'm assuming like a fitness band of some sort, if it's tracking location maybe through the phone? Yeah, so we are hardware agnostic, so we look at a wearable that's fit for purpose but also appropriate for the context of use. So in some diseases, your consumer-grade Fitbit ones 
are very mm-hmm. adequate. In other situations, you probably want better rigor okay. and would require a more medical grade device. So if for vital signs, you would need a wearable device that, that had that sort of um, accuracy. So as I say, we're wearable and device agnostic. So if we had a child that had failure to thrive, we could even integrate a, a Bluetooth enabled um, weighing scales. Um, okay. And then the, the parents could sort of uh, use that as a way to, to track things by their phone. Okay. And I was just going to say, so what does the existing solution look like at the moment? So in terms of clinical trials, are they the main way that people kind of are gathering this data aside from what you guys offer and what's not good about those? Yeah, so currently clinical trials rely on patients coming into hospitals and reporting their uh, symptoms on generally paper-based questionnaires, paper-based diaries, um, and it's a very snapshot episodic view. So you have bias by doctors in terms of what they choose to report on, um, but you also have a problem with memory recall for parents and patients to try and remember what happened when and how severe it was. So we don't have this sort of remote continuous data stream currently included in clinical trial, which given that only one to three percent of a patient's experience in terms of disease burden is captured in electronic health record, we're missing out on a really big important part of what the burden of the disease is for the patient. Mm. And I guess it's when you when you go into the doctors, it may not be at that specific time, you know even from a sort of like general patient perspective that you know you're going to the doctors and you're trying to report on your illness but actually you're feeling better that day for example you're not having you know you're not um, as ill as you were a few days ago for example it's quite hard I guess in that snapshot yeah exactly so that's kind of it's that variation from day to day hour to hour certainly week to week that, that we're trying to define and and hopefully build a better disease model um, and, and understand that variability a bit better What's the response been like from different parties that you guys work with? So we're four and a half years old now. Um, Initially, there was a lot of, you know, well, the clinical trial design, the regulators, the pharmaceutical companies, they've been operating this way for 50 years. They're very risk averse. They're not very innovative in accepting new ways of working. So, you know, there was a lot of cynicism and a lot of, but then there was a couple of early adopters, um, and I mean, when we started four and a half years ago, I would say we were pretty much one of the only um, companies sort of doing this. And now, you know, you can see the number of other right, companies popping up that it's becoming much more of a popular um, area. So people are a lot more kind of warm to the technologies and that kind of tracking element kind of yeah I describe it at the moment as the perfect storm um, okay. you know patients are becoming more demanding in their expectations and what they're willing to tolerate as part of a clinical trial but at the same time you know we have a real problem with lack of capacity as hospitals to do these clinical trials um, which is really also impacting recruitment and retention mm-hmm. and so the drug development um, kind of paradigm is broken not fit for purpose and you know it digital and innovation has to sort of come as a way to to marry those two two issues together i think and then getting started with the technology how you know how easy is it to use from a sort of like parent and child perspective and getting on board with the app and the device 
Um, yeah, so we've tried to do uh, very, you know, UX friendly sort of solutions, very simple ones um, in a way to really support that. You know, going back to the point I was, I was trying, what we're trying to do is make the clinical trial experience easier for the child and family um, or any patients. Uh, we do adults, patients too. Um, and what you don't want is actually to inflict more burden and sure. more complexity sure. and more devices and things. So unless we can offer this as a really easy to use, low burden, low impact way, then it'll actually be counterproductive to what we're trying to achieve. Um, and so we've, we've kind of, you know, we're evolving the product all the time in view of that and we you know we've had issues with teenagers didn't like the wearables because they wanted iphone watches okay, and they weren't trendy enough, enough and <laughs> you know course. so actually it's the teenagers that have been <laughs> the most difficult ones. yes <laughs> fair enough um what kind of diseases are you guys focusing on so so far uh, it is in genetic rare diseases okay. so you, most of the time people haven't heard but Duchenne muscular dystrophy Gaucher disease Tay-Sachs um, we have uh, juvenile idiopathic arthritis um, and narcolepsy that we've just started so we have got pediatrics and adult diseases uh, we've got a complex epilepsy study in South Africa right. so sort of a, a variety of ones but um, more in the sort of as I say uh, life-limiting, life-threatening, yeah. rare, um, but a really high unmet need in terms of the the disease burden in these patients. Is that one of the main reasons that you focused on those initially, that kind of high need? Or? No, it's all driven by my clinical and regulatory experience. Okay. So, you know, the tech is very applicable to all diseases in all areas, but, you know, my I was paediatrics clinically for so long, and yeah. as a regulator, I was cro crossing between paediatrics and rare diseases. So it's been really driven by my clinical and regulatory expertise and contacts and insights. Um, but we are seeing a bit of a sort of snowballing effect where we now kind of uh, been asked to collaborate on an adult insomnia study and another adult migraine study. So we are seeing this reaching out to other non-pediatric, non-rare kind of... Uh, so there's no reason why the kind of the wearable tech and the kind of app platform that you guys have built can't be applied to other diseases basically yeah no absolutely it, I, you know I feel very strongly that it can be applied to all, all the therapeutic areas and then on on the kind of devices and the app you, we touched on this a little bit earlier but what kind of information and data can you gather so I guess people would, would kind of think of a, a wearable technology as like a heart rate sensor or a step counter is it kind of that kind of data or what else can be gathered from yeah so as i said we, we're hardware agnostic so the wearables can vary so mm -hmm. it can be your consumer grade step sleep stuff yep. like that or it could be a more high grade wearable device for vital signs so saturation temperature respiratory things like that um but from the phone app we're really focusing on other far more um, uh, data-rich sources like the videos. So for the epilepsy study, parenting are videoing the seizures okay. and okay. sharing the video of the seizures because, as you can imagine, the child never really has the seizure in the clinic in front of the doctors and they always have a, a home sure. in the playground. Um, so they can video the seizures and show the seizure video to the clinicians to see what type the seizures is and, and things like that. Um, we're also looking at voice 
um, and to see how changes in voice um, and then photos for sort of joint pains or wounds um, but also a lot of uh, fast you know the visual analog scales for mood uh, for children they have the smiley face options one so we use a lot of infographics, so it's it's quite varied. In terms I imagine of then the data that you can get is arguably more accurate, more accurate compared to in the clinical trial or in that kind of doctor's appointment. Is that right? Yeah. So we definitely we definitely feel that the the data is more accurate from um, avoiding issues like memory recall and issues like that, um, and because it is in real time um, and it is on a device that the patient or parent is familiar with using as well. Awesome. And then how do you guys kind of fund the endeavour? Do you work with kind of like sponsor companies? How does it work? So our business model so far is to get pharmaceutical companies to sponsor okay. the studies. Um, we do make sure that we co-develop the study with the patient groups where possible so that you know, it's very easy to get overexcited with what technical aspects you can bring in and the patient will give you a very quick reality check of why that's not feasible or kind of accessible to them. Um, so, yeah, the business model is for pharmaceutical companies to, to be sponsoring it um, and then, you know, clinicians and, and patients become part of the study design before we deploy it. Then. So then do the pharma companies then have access to the data and, how, and if so, how do you guys prevent them from, I don't know, using that data for their own benefit or, for example, to increase the price of a drug that is actually very much in need? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and obviously trust and sure. um, data ownership in the health space is becoming a major issue. Um, and the way that um, different business models are driving a slightly worrying trend to how data about patients is aggregated. Um, from our point of view, the patient, yes, does download the app on their own phone, but we do not take uh, name, email, any details like that. We connect it via QR code, which links them to the study site system. They're given an, an, uh, an anonymized code, um, and consent is at the heart of it. So when patients consent to take part in the study, it clearly stated who sponsors the study, okay. who has access to their individual data, who has access to their anonymized aggregated data, and what the data is being used for. Um, in the rare disease genetic kind of disorders, you know, we are aware that data is going to lead to a cure and bring, bring therapies. Sure. So generally, patients and families are very altruistic and they want their data to be used to understand more about the disease and to try and identify new endpoints and outcomes that can be used in clinical trials. Um, but, you know, as you say, there is always this concern of unexpected consequences. And while in the spirit of understanding more about the disease... Uh, we are trying to control that the data is, is only used for those purposes and not for other, not so... Uh, <laughs> not so good purposes. Yeah. Um, and then, have you guys got any insight into, over the kind of last few years that you've been working, of how the data's been able to either transform lives that the people you've worked with or the research into the cures for those conditions? 
Yeah, I mean, it's still early days. Um, you know, we're certainly getting more validation of the tools, more acceptance of the tools. You know, our PI, Principal Investigator for our study at NIH, the National Institute of Health in America, you know, admitted herself that she was sort of really taken aback by the quality and the quantity of the data coming through that gave her an insight into the disease that had not been so clear to her. Um, so, you know, I, I know it's sort of very sort of required in the sort of startup tech space to, to always be sort of um, accelerating sort of this is impact. And unfortunately in health, life science, things do take a long time because clinical trials do take a long time. Um, but we feel really pleased and excited that we're making the right level of progress for where we're at. Awesome. Do you think that the tech that you guys have built had, could, could be used for something outside of healthcare? Like it would work for something else? Um, we've, we've not necessarily considered that okay. um, at the moment. Um, we sort of feel we've focus. got plenty, plenty to be doing crack, crack the net in healthcare at the moment. Fair enough. Um, I'm sorry to you know, bring up the B word, but it is kind of quite a trending topic at the moment. Um, but it'd be, I guess, just good to understand how Brexit would affect an industry like yours and how it kind of impacts or how, you know, it currently works with the current relationship we have with the EU and clinical trials and how perhaps that will change and the impacts of that? Yeah, so so for us in our industry, I mean, you know, the way we currently understand Brexit is going to be a devastating effect for, for this space. Rare disease uh, clinical trials have to operate globally. You can never get sufficient number of patients in one country to make the data really statistically meaningful, but also to make the patient numbers you know, viable for studying. So global um, collaboration and, and global um, clinical trials are essential to make it feasible. And that's where the regulators offer really good Cross European. So, if you get a drug uh, authorized in Europe, it already and automatically becomes licensed and regulated for all 27 member states, which a pharmaceutical company could never afford to apply 27 times to get that drug regulatory uh, approval and available in every market. Um, so, the UK, you know, benefits a lot from that too. Um, and for us as a company, you know, we also want to be selling within the single market. So that was sort of the driver for us to open the office in Amsterdam so that we could still operate within the same regulation, but also within the same single market to um, allow that. As I say, because, you know, clinical trials and not just rare disease, to be fair, you know, even Alzheimer's studies, dementia studies, obesity studies, you do need to make these studies internationally and globally um, to make them viable. Um, and, you know, my, my view is that health has no borders um, and that that's, you know, one of the areas that we really should be collaborating on. Super. Um, what I should have checked you meant B word is in Brexit, not blockchain. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's completely fair enough. Um, what motivates you, Ellen, uh, to kind of keep doing what you're doing? Is it some really really cool stuff you're working on? Um, so you know, I've I've sort of seen um, on a very clinical uh, first level that. Um, 
you know, the, 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 the sort of impact that these diseases have on children and families. I've seen when clinical trials can work well. I've seen when clinical trials can, can work really badly. Um, and, you know, for me, I'm really driven to make sure that children and patients that go through clinical trials in the future um, have a, a better clinical trial experience. But actually when drugs that really work become available, that they become available very quickly and pass through the regulatory hurdles, you know, in the quickest time as possible, in the safest way possible, but give hope to these patients. Amazing. I'd love to just mix things up a little bit with a quick, quick fire round. Mm-hmm. That's all right. So, um... Football or rugby? Rugby. I'm Welsh, obviously. <laughs> I was going to say England, Ireland, Scotland or Wales is my question. Uh, Wales Grand Slam winners. <laughs> uh, tea or coffee? Coffee. Black coffee. Uh, land or sea? Oh, um, well, sea, I don't, don't, don't know if you know, I rode across the Atlantic, rode across the Indian, sailed the Pacific, sailed the Atlantic, so I guess it has to be sea. Fair enough. <laughs> and so if you were to choose between being a rower or being a sailor... That's obviously going to be a difficult one. Um, so I think I'll go sailing for this time of, of okay. my life. It's, uh, <laughs> Fair enough. Is, is sailing a little bit easier, is a little bit easier than rowing? Or um, it's, it's physically easier, I think, on the, on the joints and on the body, uh, but harder in other ways. Okay. And then just finally, I'd just love to ask you where you see the future of Aparito and kind of wearable tech in healthcare over the next 100 years. Yeah. Well, I don't think, you know, I think it's one of those things that uh, it's going to change rapidly. Uh, well, I, I'm going to contradict myself. <laughs> Rapid changes in healthcare don't always happen, but it's going to be incremental changes, but um, I don't think it's necessarily going to be in the way that we think okay. it will. Um, you know, I think there are going to be um, other changes in the sort of overall landscape uh, that sort of determines where where the technology um, happens. I think there are huge opportunities for AI and things like radiology and pathology. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, we humans, we want human touch, we want human contact, we want empathy, we want support. Um, and I'd love to see that all of this technology goes towards making, uh, you know, the drugs that are designed better, but also that the clinicians, the doctors, the nurses' time are better used for that personal contact point of view. So um, I, I really hope that we can use technology to make that personal interaction at a time of ill health a bit better. It's kind of bringing, I guess that humanity element, using that technology to help empowering doctors and physicians. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, as a society, we've all become so busy now. I think we need to try and find a way where technology gets us to be less busy, but more meaningful. For sure. I mean, I I think I'd love to hope that as well. (laughs) Um, Awesome. Thank you so much, Ellen. It's been a really, really interesting episode. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you very much. Amazing. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please leave us a review on the iTunes store. If you're listening on an Apple device, it helps us out massively. And subscribe to hear about all the other exciting new emerging technologies we're going to uncover next. If you've got any examples of any companies or technology that we should be speaking to, then also please let me know. I'll leave all the ways of getting in contact with me down in the show notes. Thanks.